thank you for joining us today. My name is Kevin Navratel, and I am a political science professor at Moraine Valley. I'm also the Democracy Commitment Coordinator. In this semester, we've been hosting a series of events on the 2020 election. And this is our final event where we are going to answer any questions that you may have about the 2020 election and talk about some of the implications of the 2020 election, um, some of the potential changes we could see on domestic and foreign policy making. Um, I'm joined with my uh, rock star colleague, um, Mary Fafleese Dunkel. She is a political science history and sociology professor. So thank you for joining me today, Mary. Good morning, Kevin. My pleasure to be here with you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, Mary and I have um, talked a little bit about how we might want to approach this, and um, it's been quite a week. It's been uh, a very uh, uh, eventful election with, um, I know a lot of late nights by at least myself of watching um, the returns come in and trying to follow um, the presidential race in particular. Um, we're having an election during the pandemic, so that has made things a little bit more difficult than normal. So we planned on um, covering some of the implications and key takeaways, but um, we thought we'd give an opportunity to, for you, to, uh, the participant, to ask any questions via the chat function. If you type out any question or aspect that you would like us to cover today, that way we make sure that we make it relevant to you. This is a unique situation where um, we don't have a specific class attending this session and it's just open to the public. And um, so I, I definitely wanna make it relevant to our audience. So please let us know if there's anything in particular that you would like us to touch upon uh, in our time today. Um, and we would be happy to talk about that. Um, but until we get some questions, I thought I would start off with um, showing a few results from the 2020 election. So bear with me here for just a second. Okay, so first of all, um, this election is unique in a lot of ways, one of which um, it, we had a pandemic. We were in the middle of a pandemic. So we have had mail-in uh, voting, absentee voting um, for over a hundred years. Um, some states, uh, especially out West, use it exclusively. However, um, many more states uh, adopted it on a much larger scale in this election. And so because of that, uh, and many people predicted this would happen, um, you know, not all the votes would be counted on election night. Um, it just this, this, the sheer scale and volume of number of absentee ballots uh, for states to collect, some of which states like um, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin were prohibited from starting their uh, vote collection uh, where they could start tabulating the re results of their mail-in ballots that arrived early until election day. So it was really kind of a unique situation where um, uh, ballots, depending upon the state that you live in, can, can still be accepted um, as long as they were postmarked by election day. 
um, in, in places like Illinois for up for two weeks until after the election. So that made it a little difficult for, um, you know, many people predicted that this would happen as far as there being like a red mirage in a few of these battleground states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, where some of the, the votes that uh, were made in person might get counted first. And every state uh, reports their results differently as far as whether they count um, the mail-in ballots first or in-person uh, voting first. And so um, it looked like, you know, the early returns were favoring Donald Trump in some of these early states um, on election night. And, and obviously that has changed since then to where, um, the major media outlets have at least called Pennsylvania for Joe Biden, Michigan, Wisconsin, um, Nevada, giving uh, currently at least 279 electoral college votes for uh, Joseph Biden, making him the president elect. There are a few states that have been yet to be called officially by um, multiple outlets, at least, and that is Georgia, where Joe Biden has a small, uh, about 12,000 vote lead. Um, North Carolina, that is a bigger lead for Donald Trump, um, that should be called soon. And then Arizona, that is a fairly small lead for um, Joseph Biden. So trying to share my screen here um, and um, to try to show you what the electoral college votes will likely look like when this is all said and done. And that is that uh, Biden will have 306, which happens to be the exact same number of votes that um, Donald Trump had electoral votes in 2016. So this is what the map should look like based on um, our expectations. And uh, when all the final votes are certified in the various states, so I'm gonna stop sharing my screen now. Um, and I still, I don't see any questions yet. So what I was going to do is, um, before I turn it over to Mary, is just talk about uh, some of the key takeaways that I had from this election. Um, all right, so um, first of all, I think one of the big winners in this election was voter turnout. Um, citizens did a great job of showing up to vote. Um, this is really impressive considering we're living in a pandemic. Um, it looks like we're going to set a record for voter turnout in the last uh, 120 years. Um, really since 1900, I think we're about 67% voter turnout. Um, so that's really impressive. Um, I think that both parties can find something to be happy with, um, to be, uh, or disappointed with, with the results, you know, as we're looking now, um, re Democrats uh, have won the presidency. Um, they're going to maintain the House of Representatives majority, but they actually, Democrats lost uh, at least five, 10, to maybe even up to 15 seats, um, de depending upon some of these close elections uh, in the way that they go. Um, Republicans have a minimum of 50 um, Senate seats and potentially two more. Um, one of the questions we already received was, in Georgia, if no candidate receives a majority in the general election, then they have a runoff election with the top two candidates. So I wanna say January 5th, there's a runoff election 
between um, the top two. So there happens to be two separate elections for both of the uh, Senate seats in Georgia on January 5th. Um, I, I want to say between Kelly Loeffler and John Ossoff, and then uh, Raphael Warnock and uh, uh, David Perdue. Yeah, in the other seat. And so um, it's possible that Democrats win one or both of those seats, or I would, you know, at this point, it's put Republicans probably in a slight advantage for, the, for maintaining those two seats. So Republicans could win 52 seats in the Senate, um, but at a minimum um, have um, 50 seats. And um, that's where we're sitting with the Senate. And I'd also point out that Republicans did really well at the state level. I think um, they will have, uh, if you look at state legislatures, which happen to create the congressional districts for the next 10 years, because this, this is a census year, we'll have new congressional districts um, for the 2022 elections up and through the 2030 elections. And Republicans will have a hand, um, will be able to control the, the map making in four times as many states as Democrats. I think there was a, uh, another point I'd like to make is that this is a key historical moment for um, uh, Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris. Uh, amazing moment to have the first woman as vice president, a lot of firsts with her, uh, first African-American, um, first uh, Asian multiracial candidate. Um, and I think that's awesome for a lot of different reasons for, for people to um, look to her as somebody who reflects um, America. And um, I'd also point out that um, a major takeaway from for me in this election is just how divided we are as a country. Um, very impressed with the voter turnout of, of being a, a record high in the last 120 years. But um, there weren't a lot of people who I think um, were open-minded to um, the other party or other candidate. I think people were pretty partisan in how they decided this election. And, um, and I worry about that growing division. In, in fact, um, you know, Donald Trump hasn't conceded this election. Um, I refer to Biden as president-elect because he does have um, the majority of the Electoral College votes, but um, major Republican leaders, including Mitch McConnell, have failed to acknowledge Biden as president-elect, and uh, I'm just kind of worried about this growing partisan divide um, that, that um, our, our new government and Joe Biden and the Republican Senate and Democratic House is going to inherit. So. Um, in light of that, what I wanted to talk about just a little bit is the consequences of having divided government. And uh, so we're, we're looking at a Democratic president, a Republican Senate, and uh, a very narrow Democratic House. And so that means as citizens, I think we need to be very educated and informed on the way our system works with separation of powers and checks and balances. Um, many of the maybe um, more visionary or idealistic um, campaign ideas and platform of Joe Biden might not be realistic. Um, you know, some Democrats, I think, really were interested in, in a more progressive agenda of, of you know, let's say a, a Green uh, New Deal, um, maybe changing um, the filibuster or, you know, massive kind of new stimulus program to help 
uh, the economy, uh, potentially adding new states like Puerto Rico. And really with a Republican Senate, all of that is at least either off the table or you know, um, when it comes to a stimulus is probably gonna be much more modest. And so I think we have to understand um, that just because Biden um, is the president doesn't mean he's going to get exactly everything that he wants. Um, I, I also think that um, it's it, Biden is unique. One of the takeaways that I have from this election is that uh, he has failed to win the yeah, the nomination of his, of his, he's run for president three times. In two previous times, in two different decades, he failed to win the nomination. And it was actually like pretty poor showing, right? I mean, he, he, he dropped out pretty quickly into um, both of his previous uh, election runs. And so it's kind of interesting in that I feel like I'm more of a, I, I guess the way that I look at elections, a lot of times I think it's important to understand the moment that we're in. And I think that in 2020, Joe Biden finally met the right moment for his, his, his candidacy to work. And he is uh, a statesman. You know, he has served for almost four decades in the Senate. He had served eight years as a vice president. He's known to be a very decent uh, and good person. And I think you can go across the line of people who have worked with him between Mitch McConnell, um, Lindsey Graham, John McCain, other people who have served with him in the Senate for decades who have, have always had positive things to say about him. And it just may be that that's kind of what Democrats or America was looking for at this moment in time of having somebody um, with his kind of gravitas and decorum and decency. And so I think he kind of found the right moment in, in speaking back to whether he can get his initiative done. I just kind of laid out some of the challenges that he's going to have with facing a Republican Senate, um, but maybe one of the benefits for, for having him in, as the president for Democrats is that he has uh, all of this background and experience in the Senate. He has close relationships with Mitch McConnell. Um, when he was vice president under the Obama administration, he, um, he was frequently the, the kind of go-to person when there was the last minute negotiations between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Mitch McConnell would often say, get Joe on the phone um, because he knew Joe um, kind of get down to the details and let you know uh, speak freely on on where democrats were fully tackle the, the big problems that we're facing. You know, there's there's no shortage of major issues that we are facing as a country. Obviously a pandemic um, with rising cases by the day, um, an economy that uh, has lost a lot of jobs where a lot of people are, are really hurting um, to make ends meet. Um, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of racial tension, a lot of um, conflict domestically, I think, uh, uh, between people in their different visions of what America should be. And I just hope that our new Senate, new House, new president um, all work together in, in the spirit of uh, cooperation and, and, 
and uh, not looking to the next election, looking for their narrow kind of self-preservation interests and looking out for the American interests. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Professor Fafleese and look forward to taking any questions and comments that you have um, later. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. And you know, we do actually have a question um, that, that came over about Donald Trump having a case in court. If you don't mind, though, I was going to piggyback off a point you made, a very good point, Kevin, about um, this sort of being Joe Biden's moment, um, you know, him having run multiple times in, in, in 1988 and, and not, not being successful. For those of students who don't know about his background, um, Joe Biden's had his experience of loss that and grief that I think kind of groomed him for this moment. Um, he lost his, when he first won um, as senator in Delaware, um, his wife and his, um, his two sons and his daughter were in a car accident, horrible car accident, in which his wife and daughter were killed. And so he was sworn in as, as senator um, of the state in the hospital with his two boys next to him. And then, of course, about five years ago, he lost his son, Bo, um, to cancer, to brain cancer. So I think he, he's able to express an empathy um, in dealing with, especially since we've endured so much loss in this country, we're approaching, what's the number now of, uh, of coronavirus, um, which I, it, I'm sorry, I should know that number by heart right now, but um, it's, it's too high, whatever it is at the, at the, at the moment. Um, I think in, even in Illinois, we had 10,000 cases um, and the, the, the rates of death are starting to go up again, unfortunately, as the ICU rates are going up as well. So I think that he's kind of one of those men that's, that's well suited for the moment in that he's been through something that allows him to, um, I think, empathize with people in a way that, that maybe other past presidents have not been able to. And I think people feel kind of a sense of comfort with that. Anyway, that's just a side, a side note. But um, the question about Donald Trump having a case in court and, you know, Kevin, feel free, we could you know, jump back and forth in on that, too. Um, do you mind if I share my um, my presentation? Am I able to? I think I have to be enabled to be able to share it. Awesome. Thank you, sir. File. I'll do the file. Okay. Desktop. Give me one second here, folks. We always have just to have a little... Uh, Technical difficulties. There we go. Okay. Are you able to see that, Kevin? Can you see it? Yes. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. And like I said, Kevin, feel free, please, to uh, jump in on this. Um, I just had a couple slides that I, I put together. And, and as uh, Kevin already beautifully went through it, I'm not going to, I just want to jump in on a couple different things. Um, yeah, the, the turnout that you talked about was was unbelievable. You've already mentioned a lot of this stuff about the uh, the absentee ballots. And I think that's one thing that, that there's been a lot of confusion that's been sown uh, that people have not understood because of uh, some of the, the uh, misinformation that's been coming out. Um, the idea that people, why are there so many, I heard students say, well, why are there so many ballots being counted now? Like, well, you know, why, are, why is the number changing? Um, well, that's because, again, that mail-in ballots in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan were not being counted before. They, were, they started being counted on election night, which therefore made that counting rather slow. We're still counting in Georgia. We still don't have a tally in Georgia or North Carolina. Now, where things get muddled, though, is that, that um, the Trump campaign now is saying that there has been fraud, but we have yet to see any, any proof of that fraud. And so the question from uh, Ronisha that's been put out here is about Donald Trump having a case in court. Um, you know, there has to be some kind of proof that there has been an issue. 
And there are some, there's some couple of things I wanted to, to go over. So in places like Philadelphia, uh, where there were allegations being made that, that um, you know, that there, the ballots were being um, thrown out or not counted or whatever it might be, there were surveillance cameras. You could watch on a live stream these ballots being counted. So the idea that it was just so easy to, to, to just kind of commit fraud is it just it's simply not true. It's very, very difficult to, make, to commit fraud. Now, mistakes happen. Um, there's a difference between mistakes and between fraud. We are at a, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin, I think the statistic is about 0. 0.0000, four zeros, four to 0. 0.00008 of election uh, um, so-called fraud. And it's usually come down to like mistakes that have happened. Uh, the person may have died in between the time that a ballot was mailed to the time that, that the election occurred. Um, and so most times it is, it is an accident. It's not a, a, an actual deliberate case of fraud. Uh, but when you're launching the fraud, though, it tends to, it's, it's kind of freaking people out. And I've included a link on here that I'm happy to uh, actually uh, put on the chat as well for people to look at from the Brennan Center that talks about the um, kind of debunking some of these, these different, um, this is before this election, going back further um, of, uh, of why this is just simply not the case. So again, fraud is one thing. A mistake is one thing. Fraud is an entirely different thing. Um, the other thing I think that's been really interesting, a takeaway that I would, I would take to add to what Kevin was saying is, is how I've enjoyed seeing just civil servants, just simple kind of civil servants on the, on the local, on the, on the state level, Democrats and Republicans alike kind of working together and coming out and saying, no, we're, you know, we stand by our voting. We stand by our tally. There is integrity in this process. There's no fraud taking place here. Um, and I just saw, like, I included a quote in here that was that came up in the Washington Post yesterday. I'm sorry, it should say the 9th. It should say 11 9 uh, 20, not 11 10. Um, that the Secretary of State uh, in Georgia, um, who is a Republican, is being called to resign over uh, his failure to, quote, deliver an honest and transparent election. And he's taking, obviously, umbrage with that, saying that this election has been delivered quite honestly and that he, he refuses to resign. Um, and similar, similar applications are being made in other states as well. So this idea that, that, you know, in Arizona as well, where these are, are also Republican secretaries of state or Republican local election officials who are saying there's nothing going on. Um, so when you have crowds outside the building saying count the votes, well, they're, they're counting the votes. That's what they were doing inside these, these, these ballot places. They're counting the votes. Um, and, and part of the problem, I think, is that, you know, it seems to be that in some cases, so if we're saying in Pennsylvania, we're saying that we want the votes to be stopped. But then in Arizona, we're saying to count the votes, it, there seems to be a bit of a, a discrepancy in, in what, what is being asked for. So there have been a few Republicans who have come out and said that, that uh, Trump needs to concede the election. Now, in order for there, in order for there to be a president-elect Biden has been transitioning, acting as though this transition is, is taking place. But in order for it to be, let's say, legit, so to speak, um, President Trump does not necessarily have to concede. But the General Services Administration in the executive branch has got to authorize it and say, okay, we can, we can proceed with this. He can go ahead and this, this transition can now start to take place so that Trump administration officials and Biden administration officials can start talking to one another. But that's not yet happened. So you've had some prominent Republicans like uh, Mitt Romney of Utah and Ben Sass of Nebraska who've come out and have congratulated Joe Biden um, as being president um, and some former Republican congressmen um, but as, as, as Kevin also pointed out, as Professor um, um, Eversill pointed out, Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, has not yet done so. And Lindsey Graham, who was kind of silent the first couple of days, is now coming on full force saying that, you know, 
if these if these results are not challenged, Republicans will never win an election again. But again, the facts don't seem to really match up with what's being said. Um, you know, the one discrepancy that, keep, that seems to keep emerging is that why is there no challenge then to these victories in the U.S. Senate then? Why are there only challenges to the presidency? So is it so it's okay for the U.S. media then to call, let's say, an election for the presidency and say, okay, there's enough enough um, electoral votes to determine that that um, Joe Biden is the winner of the presidency? Then doesn't that call into question some of these senatorial races as well? And there's been no talk of that. Um, and you know, in the case of, of President Trump, he got more votes this time than he got last time. So if there's like widespread fraud, how how is that the case? Um, something else that came up yesterday that I, I did see uh, that, that is being uh, alleged, and again, I'm sorry, yesterday, apparently I thought that yesterday was November 10th. I'm sorry, <laughs> today is November 10th. I kept claiming that my articles were from November uh, November 10th, they were from November 9th. Um, but talking about this idea of undervoting, that one of the allegations that's being made is that these, these votes must be wrong because only the president's name is being filled out in the, in the ballot and nobody else. Well, I'll tell you all that when I was first voting in Illinois, and I didn't know who the heck I was voting for as a young, like 18 year old voter. I would just vote for, let's say, the governor. And I had no idea who else I was voting for. So I would vote for maybe the governor and maybe um, and maybe my congressman. And that was it. I wouldn't vote for any, any of the judges or anything because I didn't know. So I would turn in a largely empty ballot. And I remember, you know, the election officials would say, OK, you're, you're missing some there's some some missing things on here. Are you sure you want to turn it in as it is? And I'd say, yes, I'm good. And they would just take it and turn it in. So that's this idea of undervoting is normal. It does not mean that's fraud. It just means that some people just will vote only for the president and not vote for other um, senators or other other um, offices. Again, in terms of the proof being like, where is this proof? So far, there's been no there have been lots of allegations made, but there's not yet been any actual substantial proof being made. And um, uh, the Senate senator from Pennsylvania, is that um, not to me? Is it to me? Kevin, I'm having a brain burp. Yeah, um, was saying just yesterday that okay, or on, on Face the Nation on Sunday that, that okay, if there is proof, he didn't come out and, and congratulate Joe Biden, but he does seem to be saying that that oh, Joe Biden has apparently won. But if there is proof, then that proof needs to be needs to be given, um, and then we can go from there. So, and to answer this long-winded uh, answer to your question, Renisha, I'm sorry, um, is that in terms of court options, there don't seem to be very many at the moment because there there really is no proof being being uh, being offered. Um, so, so whatever uh, cases have been brought before the courts in a couple different states, they've been essentially thrown out. Um, now, Justice um, Samuel Alito, uh, who is the presiding justice from the Supreme Court in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey area there, did um, issue a, a decree, so to speak, saying that uh, Pennsylvania had to separate the ballots that were coming in after Election Day, um, but that was already being done. Um, but that's been the only talk so far that the Supreme Court has made. Um, I, I would venture to say that the Supreme Court is not going to want to say too much about the, this idea of, of intervening in this election because they did once in 2000. And that was seen as kind of a, um, a very a lightning rod moment for the Supreme Court where the court has become quite politicized. Um, and since then, as, as, as it's been difficult to, to depoliticize it since that has happened. And not to mention, when that did happen, they said this is a one-off. In other words, when they issued, the, issued that decree, and, or they issued their ruling in Bush v. Gore in 2000, they said, okay, we're not, this is not precedent. We're not issuing this, this ruling so that afterwards you can go ahead and, and use this for political precedent later on. We're just issuing this ruling now, and that's it. 
So um, I would I would venture to say that there's not much um, in terms of uh, options for the court. I think I, this is more of a delay tactic uh, and more kind of a PR stunt to kind of get Trump sort of uh, comfortable with the idea that, you know, it's time to maybe, you know, turn it in. Um, and he doesn't like to, no one likes to lose, right? Nobody likes to. But uh, he definitely is a person that, that has demonstrated that he does not like to lose. So he's not yet quite at that point where he's ready to, um, to concede. So I do also have slides about foreign policy, but do you want to hold off on that, Kevin, in case you want to, want to jump in? Sure. Let's, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a cold. Um, excellent um, point on the, excuse me, <clears throat> on the Sorry. Supreme Court and on the court cases. And I would just kind of echo what Mary pointed out. And really, there's, there isn't any path for uh, President Trump to somehow get to 270 votes, uh, electoral college votes. Um, any of these, any of his, you know, Mary did a good job pointing out there really isn't any evidence of uh, large scale voter fraud. And it isn't systematic in any way. I mean, um, we have Republican Secretary of States, Republican governors in places like um, Georgia and Arizona. So, um, you know, it, there isn't uh, any systemic pattern of irregularities. And I think if you know his playbook, his playbook is, is to cast doubt. And, um, um, you know, he was asked before 2016 whether he would abide by the election results. And he said he wouldn't commit to it. And in, in 2020, he said, we'll have to see. I'll have to see what I, you know, depend upon what I see. And so in 2016, in one of the, I think it was the Iowa contest that um, uh, Ted Cruz may have won, where he said that, you know, there was fraud and we need to, the, the results weren't valid. And so it's kind of his game, so to speak, is to um, question the legitimacy of elections. And, and um, frankly, I find that just repulsive. I, I, our elections are a bedrock foundation of our political system. And as Mary pointed out, you know, there's, it's really tireless work by civil servants across the political aisle who engage in, in, in counting the votes. And um, there, it was very transparent. Um, and as she pointed out, I mean, this was a really good election for Republicans in a lot of ways. I mean, the, the total voter turnout um, across the board, um, you know, I, I want to say that Republicans won 29 of the 30 most competitive seats, uh, House seats, according to Nate Silver, um, that were the most competitive for this election cycle. Um, they, they did an outstanding job. I mean, Senate races, Democrats poured $100 million into the uh, Senate race in Kentucky, $100 million into the race in, in South Carolina, and they lost by 25 and 10%. Um, in those two states, um, you know, millions of dollars in Maine and, and, and Susan Collins won by 10%. I mean, Republicans did really, really well across the board. I also wanted to point out, this is just kind of uh, taking on one of the questions of, of in the, I noticed in the chat, that um, excellent observation that, you know, across the states, there was various um, referendum where citizens get to weigh in on specific issues. And and whether it was in Florida on minimum wage, uh, $15 an hour being approved, or tax on millionaires in Arizona, or um, the various um, legalization of 
recreational or uh, medical marijuana being passed across the board in every situation that it was on the ballot does show that there was some support for more progressive issues, if you will. Um, but on the flip side, you know, um, Democrats really kind of took a beating in many House races and they many competitive Senate seats were ended up not being very competitive. Um, and ultimately, you know, Democrats flipped Colorado and they flipped Arizona. But uh, Mary, am I missing any sentences? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there really wasn't um, the blue wave that I think some of the polls had pointed to um, of being a major kind of moment for the Democratic Party to not just win. I mean, at the national level, I think the presidency, um, that was a pretty strong win for Democrats. But down ballot, it just really didn't translate. And in places like Texas and Florida, um, there's really, really strong Republican turnout. And um, they did very well um, in House of Representative races uh, and also at state level races that are really key in making a lot of uh, local decision-making for citizens. Um, I, I see a question, Mary, and, and I don't know if you want to start with this. If there's no voter fraud found, what actions will uh, occur if President Trump refuses to have a peaceful transfer of power? Right, and I'm also seeing, are we seeing like different, because I also see in the chat um, for one of my students um, about what happens if Trump does not concede. So I think essentially we're kind of on the same, same wavelength. Um, so there's no precedent for this because this has never happened before um there's nothing in the constitution that says that a, a political opponent has to the loser in the, the election has to concede um it's just been it's something that has happened um just by by precedent over the years that people it's been by tradition um so that's whether he does or does not um i think that it's until the gsa goes ahead and, and authorizes this this um transition we're kind of in limbo um but if, you know if you're asking in terms of what happens if he doesn't concede like you know by inauguration day i don't think it's going to go that far um i think that when it comes i think it's at a certain point when it seems like these these legal options have all been exhausted uh, and i'm sorry my dog is a little psychotic she's out here with me she's trying to eat my deck so it's um she's a little crazy in the background um so if uh if these legal options are all exhausted it's going to be a little bit difficult to kind of keep sustaining this now the damage I would say has been done in terms of, um, you know, kind of convincing many of Trump's followers that this has been, you know, this is this is all an illegitimate election and this is, you know, all fraudulent and not to accept the results. But in terms of whether or not it will be accepted, I think eventually he will have to concede. The question is how long is it going to take him to do so, um, and whether or not will will the GSA just go ahead and authorize the transition, whether he concedes or not. And she's a, she's a Trump appointee. So, I mean, it doesn't mean she's in a very difficult position, but there have already been some op-eds written saying, you know, listen, you do what you have to do. Like it's, it's you know, whether he appointed you or not, you do what you have to do. So I would argue that, that uh, he will concede. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's gonna come to, you know, him holding out of the door of the, of the Oval Office and him having to pry his fingers off. Uh, I just certainly hope that's not the case, but um, I think it will, it will uh, uh, end earlier than that. Yeah, I, I don't really know his full game plan. And I think, I mean, we're in speculation. There is one. Yeah, um, but I don't, I don't hear him giving a concession speech. Mm -hmm. I don't envision that. But I also, like Mary pointed out, I don't see him, you know, being 
removed by the Secret Service either. Um, but just to point out, like, I, the election results are not going to be overturned. The, the votes in Pennsylvania are there for, for Biden. They will likely be there at Arizona, though Biden doesn't need it. They are likely there in Georgia. Again, Biden doesn't need it. Um, but Michigan, there's like 150,000 vote um, lead for Joe Biden. In Wisconsin, there's like a 20,000 vote lead. And there likely could be a recount there if Trump decides to pay for it. But recounts typically result in a few hundred um, right. vote changes, not thousands, like 20,000. That's not going to happen. So there's just really, and, I, and as far as these court cases, it's again, it, it, it's going to sow doubt and it's going to make us confused and going to make us think, you know, if you're a really partisan Democrat or partisan Republican, you're going to, uh, you know, filter this in your own way, I guess. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of this is just to make the system look bad. And um, that's unfortunate because uh, the results are going to hold up um, and he doesn't have a path to the presidency. I think there's a couple things going on here, and I've mentioned this before, but one of the things, you know, it, it's just norms. The norms are being violated and, and we've relied on them. They're not etched in law, but, you know, there's pictures, you can see them of, of um, you know, uh, uh, Barack Obama hosting Trump in the White House. Um, Hillary Clinton giving a concession day. speech the next day. Um, and of course, that, you know, just popular vote aside, much larger victory um, than even in 2016. And an electoral college vote is going to be the same electoral college vote victory that uh, uh, Trump had. So this, this really isn't in question. Um, if you look at the data, if you look at the, the trends of the states, the remaining ballots are likely going to lean Democrat in the states that are still collecting ballots. Um, there's a possibility that Trump picks up some more votes in Arizona, but I think the large part of this, uh, there's two things that could be going on, and there's some speculation that part of this is a play on those two Senate seats in in um, Georgia. Mm -hmm. That you know, this is a way to fire up the Republican base, keep them engaged in the process. Um, make sure that more Republicans will turn out in Georgia because, you know, even though Republicans currently have 50 senators, it, if it's a 50-50 tie in the Senate, then Kamala Harris would be the tie-breaking vote on any any uh, bill that or, or vote that came to 50-50. Um, so Republicans would love to have the actual majority so that they could, Mitch McConnell could remain the Senate majority leader. So. Right. In some ways, this is a proxy war over that Senate um, Senate races in Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, but I would also just lastly point out that the transition team of, of Joe Biden is being hurt by this because, as, as Mary pointed out, they're not going to get the resources, um, some of the briefings, and you know you need to hit the ground running. Um, when when you're inaugurated, and, and we're facing big problems with uh, not only the pandemic the economy, there's national security issues with China and Russia and uh, Iran and so many others, North Korea, you know, it's in 2000, when we had um, a, a fairly contested election that ultimately didn't get resolved until December, um, the 9-11 Commission cited that part of the reason that the Bush administration wasn't fully prepared for 9-11, um, which of course happened uh, in September 11th, 2001, when the Bush administration took office in January 
of 2001 is that that transition team wasn't um, took it took too long for them to be transitioning. They didn't they weren't able to be briefed fully um, during that timeline. And so this isn't you don't want to handicap the new government. We're already facing a recession, pandemic, um, a lot of issues. So I think it's irresponsible to uh, pursue this any longer. Yes, I would agree with that. And I'd also echo, I just, uh, this morning, um, of course I had it open and now it's, where to go here? Um, from uh, NBC News just this morning, and it's not just on there, but that uh, William Barr has issued, the Attorney General issued a memo authorizing prosecutors to go ahead and, and, and pursue substantial allegations of voting and vote tabulation irregularities. And as a result of that, the, the director of the election crime crimes branch of the Department of Justice resigned. Um, basically, his, his resignation was linked to that memo, the idea that there, there is not this fraud that's taking place and has resigned as a result. So it just seems that the longer this is, this is dragged out and, and the more that we delegitimize this election, um, it's doing nobody any favors, especially in the middle of a pandemic um, with our, our economy being in the state that it's in. They're pressing foreign policy issues that we haven't even addressed yet that also have to be addressed. So, I mean, and, and that was a prime example of, of, of 9-11. Um, so, I mean, I think you could argue this is like a 9-11 plus a, um, a financial crisis rolled up into one, um, what we're facing right now. So uh, this just doesn't seem to be helping us. Are there other questions on your end, Kev? Because I, I don't see anything else yeah, in the chat. I don't see know. any. I just want to remind if anybody came in late, we were trying to um, make this uh, relevant to whatever you're interested in, anything that you want us to address. So please use the chat um, function to um, type in any questions or comments, reactions, thoughts that you had on the 2020 election. We still have 30 minutes. Um, I know Mary um, was going to talk about some of the foreign policy implications, um, but we can oh, come back to any questions that may pop up. Right. Yeah. Um, Jocelyn just had a question and I, I'm going to defer to you on this one, Kevin, because we were talking about it in my class last time. I was supposed to give you guys an answer. What happens with the dead representative um, that was elected in North Dakota? Um, and I was, I, do you have an answer to that one, Kevin? I was supposed to look that up and I forgot to look that yeah. up and I'm sorry. The reason why we... It's up to the state to determine kind of how that seat's filled. Right. The reason why we struggle answering these questions is because it varies by state. And I, off the top of my head, don't know how the state of North Dakota handles this. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes there's special elections. Um, other times governors can appoint um, somebody, but in this case, it's, it seems to be special election threshold considering um, how quickly, you know, the, the person passed before the election was even um, took place. So I mm -hmm. don't have a, a definitive answer on that because it, it typically varies by state. So it's hard to know unless you live in that state what the various rules are. That's essentially what I said. But that's a great question. Yeah. It is a great question. I, uh, I also sh could have pointed out uh, there was a question about the fair tax, which I think is a really consequential um, policy issue that failed. So if you live in Illinois, you know that we have a, a flat tax system where everybody's taxed the same percentage. And there was a proposal to change our amendment or change the constitution to allow for um, the state of Illinois to um, basically have a higher tax 
rate for those with higher incomes. And 60% of the voters needed to support that. And unfortunately, I think they only got to about 45%. And I say unfortunately, because I think it was something that was necessary for, first of all, we have a major revenue issue in, in Illinois. And secondly, we're one of the few states that still has a flat tax system. Most states do treat tax income earners differently based on how much money they make, just like we do at the national level, where people who make more money generally have more money to give than lower income individuals. So I think that that's going to be a big problem for the state of Illinois to deal with our budget issues. Um, so now, you know, and I think that's one of the messaging issues. People, a lot of friends and family members would talk to me about this and say, oh, well, can't they raise our taxes for everybody later? And yeah, they can, but what people didn't fully comprehend with this is Democrats have the governor's seat. They have a majority in the House and in the Illinois Senate, so they could raise everybody's taxes right now or yesterday or um, you know a year ago. Um, they wanted to front load it on the highest income earners, but now to balance the budget and make sure there's enough revenue to pay for our expenses, they are likely going to raise taxes for everybody. Um, so um, that, I think, uh, failed pretty spectacularly um, mm -hmm. because they were about 15%, 10 mm -hmm. to 15% short of yeah. the votes needed. We have a couple questions that came in. Do you see them? Uh, I don't. On the chat. Oh, One of them is okay. about um, the website, and I'm assuming that Ronish is referring to the website that I provided earlier about the um, the voter fraud. I'm assuming. Uh, oh, the Brennan Center. Yeah, the Brennan. There's, there's besides just the Brennan. That's just one, but there are multiple um, sites that you could look at that are reliable, that are are bipartisan. Because I mean, there are because even the Trump administration itself also investigated in 2016. So if you recall, President Trump made the allegation that that millions of people voted illegally. And so he had ordered his own Justice Department to to um, investigate it. And they basically came up with the same the same answer, which is that there there was no there was no fraud. Um, so they're they're kind of all coming up with the same answer. So in this case, I would say that's a pretty reliable, it's a reliable source, at least in terms of for this question. Uh, and then the next one is what is the probability that Congress would pass laws about how federal elections should go? For example, ballots, et cetera. Right now it differs by state. And like you said, there's no law that forces a president to concede. Um, I'd argue that there's very little probability of that because it's, it's, it's ultimately up to the, the states. Um, Kevin, something you want to add, add to that? Yeah, I, I, I don't have a lot to add. Other countries just do it differently where, mm -hmm. you know, it's part of our federalism where we give states um, the authority to run the manner of their elections. But, you know, in, in practice, that leads to 10,000 different jurisdictions doing things a little bit uniquely. Now, granted, we have 50 states, but within the states, um, your local voter precincts may... Um, you know, they're locally run and the people who are volunteering or in some cases being paid a nominal fee each day might not be um, following the exact same procedures in another precinct. And so it would be like Canada, um, Brazil and other countries that have federal systems still use a nationalized system to make it kind of um, uniform. one size fits all uniform across the board. I think would make a lot of sense. Um, so I, 
maybe if there's enough uh, pushback about you know irregularities, if there's if they really believe that there's irregularities with this election, that would be a great way to say, okay, well, then let's nationalize a federal election commission to make sure that there's more uniformity across the board. Um, I don't unfortunately see that as as being something Republicans are really going to be interested in pursuing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Other questions? And then, yeah, there is one about Trump is making the country divisive with his tactics. How can America stop this nonsense and move forward? We can't even talk to the opposing side without yelling. And I, you know, certainly um, polarization and conflict um, on ideology had um, occurred. Uh, it's been part of us uh, since the American experiment started and it certainly preceded um, Donald Trump. But I, I think it's fair to say that it's been exacerbated too um, in, in recent years and certainly with this election. And I have, you know, on Twitter noticed a lot of calls for unity and, and for people to talk to somebody who voted differently than they did. Um, and I think sometimes that's the importance of leadership. I mean, it does, it, it matters for your leader to concede an election. Um, I think that we have to model the, the um, I guess, attitude and spirit that we would want our citizens to have. And so um, some people would say it's hard to have unity if you don't even recognize the legitimacy of this election. And, you know, then I see other people talking about, well, you, didn't see the legitimacy of President Trump and you tried to impeach him and you called him not our president and, and so forth. And so I just see a lot of people going, finding their own arguments to support why they've been um, wronged and they're the victim. And at some point this does have to stop and we have to move forward and not just look to the next election and not be looking out for our own um, partisan mm -hmm. interests. Mm -hmm. and understand the shared humanity that we have, understand the shared um, problems that we face as a country and that there's no really way of fully addressing them without working together on the same team. And, um, and hopefully there's leadership on both sides to um, promote that and model that for us. Yeah, yeah. I, I would uh, echo what you're saying, absolutely. And, uh, and, and also add to that, I think part of the problem, and we were talking about this a few weeks ago too on our last panel, um, you know, it's hard, I think for people who are, are, whether you are a Republican who voted for Donald Trump, perhaps for financial reasons, or you're a Democrat who voted for Democrat because you always vote Democrat, whatever. Um, I think you can find, if you can agree on sort of a basis of a, of a basic shared reality, it's easier to, to find consensus. But the problem is now we also have a segment of the population um, where we cannot even agree on essentially just even a, a, a bottom line reality. Um, and we talked about, you know, kind of, sort of conspiracy theories before and how, and, and how many conspiracy theories have taken, taken root um, um, in like it was about a quarter of a people, a quarter of a, the country's population now believes in, in, some, in some form of the QAnon conspiracy theory. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to move forward if you are, if you are, if a big segment of, segment of the population uh, believes things like that because if, if they believe that Democrats are engaging in child sex trafficking and and drinking the blood of children and 
and things of that nature, it's kind of difficult to, to move forward. That being said, though, that is one, I'd argue, probably a smaller segment of the population. Um, I do think that Biden is it's what we talked about earlier. Um, it's one of his strengths. You know, people were talking about the fact that he's been around for such a long time as a as a hindrance. But I'd say in many ways, it's it's, it's actually a strength in this case because he has developed relations. He's old school. Where he's the kind of guy that's going to pick up the phone to talk to you as opposed to send you an email, sending you an email or a text, um, because he 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 understands the importance of developing relationships. So he's had relationships with Mitch McConnell for a long time, and even if they disagree on things, they could you know back room get get things done. And the idea of back room does sound kind of shady to people, but that's how things do get done. So I'm I'm hopeful that that um, with his presidency and just kind of lowering. Lowering the tone, it's not going to be so, we're not going to be getting this kind of um, the kerosene on the, on the flame every single day like we were getting before. Um, uh, because that was something that Trump was, was really good at. You know, he was, he was good at kind of, kind of getting, he's a reality TV star. And, and, he, and he, I think, in many ways treated the presidency as such. Um, so we're not going to be getting that every day. So perhaps I think that in and of itself is going to help lower um, the divisiveness somewhat. So maybe I'm talking in circles here, but I do think I'm hopeful and I'm also a little still kind of uh, um, cynical too at the same time. I, I mean, I, th- I think Democrats need to, um, I think both parties have opportunities to reflect and improve and w- not just about how you can be more competitive to win more seats, but um, a strategy that's going to work for all Americans. And, and, you know, at least I think we're up to 71 million people voted for Donald Trump and, um, you know, several million more than voted for him in 2016. So um, now when I say voted for Donald Trump, they selected him uh, on the ballot and they could have done so for various reasons, but to, you know, you, that's the number, you know, that number of people is greater than 71 million people would be like the 20th most populous country in the world. I mean, it, it, it's a lot of people to just completely say, well, everything about them is wrong and evil and I can't agree with them. And then I hear from Democrats, though, that, well, some of the, you know, actual policies or ideas or statements that they make don't even acknowledge my own identity. And so, you know, I'm not trying to minimize this in any way. I just am trying to also point out that this is a large segment of the population where, you know, Biden had, is probably going to have a good five, six million more votes nationwide. So um, there's more people who support him in his vision of America, but um, we, as political scientists, you know, you have to look at this and see that, um, you know, there's definitely a huge support for, um, his candidacy, his presidency, and I don't think he's ever got to go away. Um, you know, I mean, obviously he's going to pass away at some, some point, but I, I see him being a key figure for the Republican party going for the next four years. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him emerge in 2024 and run again. Um, there's something else I wanted to point out, but I, I forgot about it. So turn it back over to you, Mary. Uh, yeah, I, I, oh God, 2024 already. <laughs> I feel like, like we're going to be talking about as soon as like the 2020, 2021 happens, we're going to start talking about 2024. Um, no, I, I would agree. I would agree with what you're saying. I think also we, you know, the role of, of social media 
in all this divisiveness is something that we've not really addressed and talked about too much. Um, and I think that they're starting to address that now, uh, companies like Twitter and Facebook. So if you notice that, that um, on many of President Trump's tweets that he was, he was throwing out there, and that disclosure, I'm not, I have a Twitter account, I'm never on there, so I never look at it, but I know that they, they were um, uh, basically issuing, disc- uh, issuing disclaimers with some of, the, some of the comments he was making regarding um, fraud, um, which is kind of a first. And I think you saw the same kind of thing with the, even with the role of media, that the media, um, because they're, they've always sort of been acting in, and even though many of you might be surprised to hear, to hear me hear someone say this, they've always tried to, they always try to act towards balance. So many times they would not call out things that would happen that were clearly untruths just because they didn't want to be, to appear to be biased. But just more recently, they have started kind of addressing things. So um, when President Trump on, on Saturday or Friday, or I don't even remember now, or Wednesday, I don't even remember what day now, you guys, I'm sorry. All um, runs together. Day, yeah, they all run together. It's been, like Kevin said, it's been a long week. Um, when he was making certain allegations and the networks, I think it was Thursday, Wednesday, they caught away from his, um, from his, uh, his, his briefing. Um, and that's something that you didn't see happen too much. Uh, before because they were saying that this is basically what he's saying is false and he, he's, he's talking about voter fraud and there's no proof of voter fraud etc cetera, etc cetera. um so that's one segment the social media thing is another um and so i think that you're starting to see these like you know companies like facebook and twitter who are starting to now crack down a little bit more on on these sort of not not necessarily censoring them saying you can't post anything but now issuing disclaimers alongside them saying well this is actually not true that also being said um, I also know that there are other websites that are popping up where, where pe- that people can go to that are not Facebook, that are not being censored, quote unquote, at all. So, I mean, is this going to just kind of keep going? I think that because this is still such an, uh, a new medium that we've not, we've not regulated it because uh, it is still relatively, it's relatively so new. Um, so I, I think that, that that does play a huge role in how we are viewing one another, right? There's, there's a difference between the, twi- the Twitter atmosphere and, and people on the ground. Like I know a lot of my neighbors uh, have had Trump signs up and they vote for Trump. It doesn't mean I'm not going to get along with them and talk to them and, you know, I'm not going to hate them. Um, but it's easier to hate someone from behind a computer than it is when that person's right in front of you. Um, you know, over the holidays, it's the same thing, right? You get together, maybe not this year, but you get together with your relatives usually, and you might have relatives that are on the opposite side of the aisle. Um, but it, it's, again, it's, it's hard just to say, well, I'm going I'm to write you off completely because you don't believe the way that, the way that I believe. So... Um, there's a comment on here that I see. I doubt that the millennials and gener- Generation Z generation will allow that to happen. Um, I'm not sure what that. Renisha, can you um, write a clarification on what you're talking about? Are you talking about like the what I said about regulate regulation of of Twitter? I'm not sure what the comments in reference to. I'm going to interpret that in one way. Why we wait for her to respond as. One of the things I think is important to point out that both of these candidates being in their mid to late 70s, um, I see Biden as a transitional figure. Mm-hmm. I don't think he runs again in 2024. Um, and, and maybe Kamala Harris has the uh, you know lead. And I don't want to start thinking about future elections, no, but I think I know, it's important it's, to, to yeah. think about who is how these parties are going to go forward. And, and I, I think there's splinters within each of their, there's, there's, um, they're big tent parties that try to get a big coalition together and it will be very interesting and pivotal for the future of our country to see 
how these coalitions, um, how tightly they stay together in the leadership of the, the parties, because for the most part, especially on the Democratic side, you have a lot of older uh, leaders between uh, Speaker Pelosi, um, uh, uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, you know, uh, and Biden. And I just wanted to point out with Biden, um, Mary, you, you mentioned he was old school. And, and I think it means a lot of different things. But one of the things that used to happen in Congress is they used to like their families would like live near each other and they'd hang out together and they'd have picnics together. And they didn't see, you know, they voted differently, but they didn't see them as like the other team to hate. They, they actually shared um, a lot in common and hung out together. And I think that personalization matters. There's that. I don't know how to say this delicately enough. It's not my skill suit, but some people have referred to Joe as creepy, creepy Joe. He's touchy. He's feely. And I think that he has been, um, it's uh, some of that has been, um, merited and and i think that he should respect boundaries but i also think there's something about his personality and all the grief that he's gone through like mary said that he is a very empathetic person who i think does try to connect to people and if you think back to like lyndon baines johnson lbj and some of the other really successful politicians they had that ability to connect with people and so I wonder if that's going to be a strength. I wonder if there's going to be a middle ground that he's going to be able to reach with some Republican senators. Um, it's something to keep your eye on. Yeah. And all he needs is a few of them, right? You don't need that many, uh, given the, even, even if the Senate stays in Republican hands, which I'm sure it probably will, all we need is a few senators to cross over. So if you've got people like your Mitt Romney and your Ben Sass yeah. who might be willing to do that, or your Susan Collins, um, there might be some room for some bipartisanship, which I think would just... The, the tone just has to calm down. The rhetoric just has to be toned down. Well, that no. that might be, you know, I just read something too. Of Senator Manchin, who's a Democrat from West Virginia, said something like, I don't want to misquote him, but I'm not going to let Democrats pass any crazy stuff. If the Democrats get the two uh, Georgia seats and they have 50 um, with Kamala Harris. Kamala if, is the type yeah, of group. But I mean, uh, you'd have to look at Senator Manchin as the 50th Democrat vote and Kristen Sinema as the 49th. I mean, these are more moderate you know, centrist Democrats and the Republicans you mentioned. So in, in essence, those, those senators could kind of form an alliance and be the kind of group of eight, if you will, that kind of moves us forward and says, you know, they are the, the four kind of middle ground Democrats, four middle ground Republicans. And, um, Anyway, that's just something to, to think about. I know there was a question about the pollsters that they have effect on the elections. And yeah, and also Renisha clarified, I'm sorry, Kevin, before you go to that one, she clarified that um, millennials and Generation Z will allow will allow Trump in office again. That's what she was making reference, that they would not elect him again in 2020, 2024. I just would say we could never, um, never, say never. <laughs> un underestimate Donald Trump um, because I think he's exceeded expectations in, in every circumstance that he's been in. And, um, you know, you just don't know how the next several years are gonna play out. But one thing we know is that we're in, we're in the midst of a recession. It would be a lot worse if it wasn't for the $3 trillion that the stimulus that passed this summer. So that's essentially gone now. And so I really worry that we're going to 
have a downward spiral economically. I think this divisiveness of this election, you know, there's there's the potential for us to not be sitting very well in the next two to four years. I think we have to be realistic of, of where we're headed as a country, of the problems that we're facing. And it might be easy for Donald Trump to say, oh, you remember, you know, make America great again. And remember how we were, remember what the economy, you remember what the stock market was doing. Um, and so I think that's something we have to, to be aware of. And as far as the pollsters, um, I, I do think that there was um, an impact that, you know, if you look nationally, there was like a 10% roughly uh, advantage that Biden had over Republican Trump in various states. It looked um, like Florida and maybe even Texas. It looked like North Carolina that uh, Biden had the advantage. It looked like a lot of Senate seats, Democrats had the advantage. And I think there was an enthusiasm amongst Democrats. I think they were more likely to participate in polls. I think once again, our polls did not do a good job of identifying the people who are actually going to show up on election day, which is really hard, especially in a pandemic. But um, it has an impact. I think there was maybe a little complacency on Democrats. Again, um, I noticed it on various websites and message boards of people like uh, saying, oh, Democrats are worrying too much. You know, they're going to win this easily. And, and um, I think Republicans use those polling advantages for Democrats to, to, to rile up their, their base and get out the vote. They were you know, knocking on doors and really spreading the word for Donald Trump. And so I think they really use, you know, they've, they've been kind of an aggrieved party in many ways of showing the media and the pollsters and big tech now, I guess, are all out to get them. And so it's a way of, of rallying um, their base to get out the vote. And I think that was helpful for Donald Trump. Yeah, definitely. Be the under. Yeah, I think he likes to be the underdog. Um, yeah, it works for him. Definitely. Do you want me to address a little foreign policy at all, or do we just kind of because we it's, we don't have that much time, or do, are there more questions? I don't see any other questions. So um, it's up to you. I mean, I can. I yeah, if you want to, at least start talking about. Uh, we can go a few minutes into foreign policy. And if there's final questions, please add them to the chat so we can get them in the final five minutes. It's pretty quick. And, and can you still see my, my presentation, Kevin? I forgot to like actually un, undo it. Is it still on there? Yes. Okay. Let me just uh, go to this next page here. Just really quick, we, we were talking about, um, you know, what, what did foreign policy look like under, under Trump? And I think this is an area where he actually had more um, success, some people would argue, than, than, uh, than even domestically. Because there were a few things that happened that, um, you know, the idea of, of renegotiating NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, uh, you know, the, these, the Israeli peace process having three countries helping to negotiate um, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Sudan to, to recognize Israel, being three new countries to recognize Israel, uh, kind of stabilizing, helping to stabilize that region. You know, a couple other things like arms to Ukraine and calling out China for, the, for its own um, unfair trade practices. Those are some of the things that are recognized as some of, some of the good stuff. Now, some of the things that, have, if, depending on what side of the aisle you are, you might look at as being, you know, maybe not so good. Um, you know, he's been, I put BFS, maybe that's not really the, the right way to say it, but he definitely has shown an affinity um, for people like, like Vladimir Putin, um, who are a bit more um, dictator-esque in their, in their attitudes towards their own people. Maybe a little flippant, but... Um, he definitely likes authoritarianism. 
um, and seems to identify with those leaders. Why can't we do that here too, right? Um, Bolsonaro in Brazil is another another example. Um, pulling out of the, the Paris Climate Accords, the uh, World Health Organization, the Iran nuclear deal, anything that seemed to be like a repudiation of things that were from the Obama administration um, were things that were that were um, withdrawn. We, we withdrew from. Now, for Joe Biden, um, obviously, I mean, he's already indicated just based on his the task force that he's put together that the coronavirus is is, is the number one priority because nothing else can really happen until that is taken care of. Um, so I think that that's already kind of underway. But there are a couple other things that he is uh, indicating that that will happen based on on uh, some of the recent literature I've read that the idea of, of keeping troops. We've had tr troops uh, stationed in Germany uh, since World War Two since 1945. And in the, um, the Trump administration, they began, I don't think it was completely done, but it, it was, um, uh, they had begun to remove those troops. Um, so I think that he'll definitely work to keep those troops there, keep some troops in, in Afghanistan, try to perhaps renegotiate that deal, the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and I definitely see us like, uh, I forgot to add in, I think I had it on there, but maybe it didn't show up, but you know, rejoining the World Health Organization, and the Paris uh, Climate Accords, and perhaps even going further on the Paris Climate Accords, because as recent events have shown, we're not going, we don't seem to, seem to be going far enough. Um, and just overall, like just kind of re reassuring these allies that we have, like um, in, in, in NATO and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, our allies in Europe, that we're, you know, we're still here. We're not going anywhere. We're not going to withdraw and, and, and leave you kind of hanging. Um, perhaps kind of, uh, uh, We'll see what this relationship with Britain looks like, uh, given the Brexit agenda, Brexit still being um, being negotiated with Britain withdrawing from Europe. So there's a lot of interesting things that are going to be happening foreign policy-wise um, for him, but definitely that's all going to pale in comparison um, until the coronavirus is under, is under control. Um, there is, uh, let's see, a question. Did you, did you want to add anything on that, um, Kevin, or... Well, with with the final fi I, five minutes, I wanted to try to get to a couple other questions that I see in the chat. Um, and um, one I wanted to start with is is just I I do think it's important to understand like who we are and the positions that our identity, Professor Fafleese and I, and you know we have positions of privilege. And I think sometimes when we talk about forgiveness and when we talk about unity, um, I, I, can, I can't fully appreciate what everybody is going through with this election and you know the various um, challenges that people are facing and the way that they've been disrespected. And um, you know, I think it's, each person is going to have to come to their own um, decision about how to move forward um, and I think it's important for us, us to recognize that too do you know what I mean um, mm -hmm. that Absolutely. yeah I mean it's Are you referring to the comment on the chat is that what you're yeah, you um, yeah yeah I mean I, I can totally understand that um, you know whether you're depending upon who you are that you're going to see this uh, election in a unique way and in that um, it's going to impact you differently and that maybe the slights and you know the 
the things that have, have happened are have just violated your integrity too much to be like, okay, now everything's great. And we're going to, yeah, you know, because you, you've, you know, violated my identity and uh, my core beliefs and, and that's too much. Mm-hmm. I, I would, I would agree. I think, um, you know, I teach history so it, as well. So I tend to take kind of a wider approach to things. And I think maybe my, my, approach comes from the idea that that this the rhetoric has gotten so um flaming that it feels like it's got to be just drawn down a little bit and and someone has to, i feel like someone has to be an adult so if that means that it's got to be if, if it starts with joe biden but that being said i mean it, it, every person is is entitled to believe how they want to believe and and how they want to look at things i would argue though i don't think that every single person and i know this is it's an individual individual um viewpoint I don't think that anybody who necessarily supports Trump, not every single person is necessarily anti-LGBTQ. I understand how people can view it that way. And I, I totally get it. But there you've had multiple um, um, districts that went, that voted for Barack Obama twice that then flipped to Trump. So, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily easy to say that it's as simple as that. I think in many cases, and, and, and it could, it's definitely part of it. I'm not saying it's not part of it. It's not the case but it's i think it's also sometimes more complex than than that but again that's that's i'm coming that from my point of view so i mean it's voters are complicated and mm-hmm. i read a lot of you know anecdotes there was an article in the new york times interviewing a gentleman who was undocumented who eventually became a citizen and his son is 20 years old and is a major Trump supporter and is really uh, enthusiastic about building the wall. Mm-hmm. And this is the son of an undocumented immigrant, right? Mm-hmm. Who illegally migrated to the United States. Um, so one would think that that's in the wheelhouse of somebody to be voting for Democrat. But, you know, as the article points out, that when you lump categories of voters together, such as Hispanics, there's actually a lot of you know, variances within this group and yes. people uh, don't always identify just with this broad umbrella term. And you have to understand there's huge differences within communities and, um, you know, that, that not everybody is going to be voting on the same particular issue. Let's say immigration, um, people have economic issues, people have, um, you know, um, identity issues. So it's, it's very hard to generalize based on groups of voters. Right, right, definitely. Um, there's a question also about finding sources, reputable sources to know about uh, Biden's agenda. Um, we can post some stuff right on here or after. Um, yeah, I will find a way to um, not only that, but the Brennan Center and some of the other work. Uh, we could probably put together your slides and add some of the sources um, and send that out. There is an alert that just came on um, that the Supreme Court appears ready to uphold the Affordable Health Care Act over the latest challenge from um, the Trump administration that just came on right now. So it's interesting. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Anyway, that's something you might want to look up after this. Yeah. And I I think we still have 30 people here and um, I appreciate your time of, of, uh, coming to talk and, and learn about the 2020 election. Um, we could talk all day about this. It's still, you know, uh, we're still getting results in and um, I 
appreciate all of your contributions. I really want to thank uh, Professor Fafliz Dunkel for sharing her time and expertise again with us today. Thank you and for having me. Awesome. Thank you all for coming. And feel free to, to reach out if you have any questions. Um, my email is navratil, N-A-V-R-A-T-I-L, K2 at marinevalley.edu.